0: Okay, let's turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Also Galatians. We're going to take a foray into Galatians chapter 3, maybe. 23 to 25. If we don't get there, read that sometime. Don't forget we want to make somebody's day this year, Christmas Day, 2018. Treasures for children still ongoing until next Sunday. And we're collecting new toys for the New Kensington branch of the Salvation Army. We've been doing this every year. It's greatly rewarding. More blessed to give than to receive, as we have heard from our Lord. And no guns or knives. Toy guns or knives. Or real guns or knives. No. None of that. We have one rule here. And it indicates the primary responsibility of believers, which is to be attentive. Be attentive. And when Moses gave his most important words to Israel, he said, listen, Israel, be attentive. The Lord our God is one Lord, and you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And Jesus married to that command as Yahweh himself and love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19, 18. So it's this twin rule that encompasses our entire responsibility that begins with attentiveness and ends with love, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, of course. We've been dealing with what is faith. It's interesting that some kind of a seismic event happened on November 11th when we were speaking about faith and not sight, and not by sight. There was a a rumbling that went all the way from Africa around the world under the earth, and the seismic earth scientists can't figure out what it was. They have no idea what it was, but it was a rumble under the earth that went across the whole, they measured it, they went across the whole world. So while we were together in the word on November 11th, God was doing something beyond sight that science can't figure out. And so, just so you know, stuff happens while we're preaching. Um, the, the earth is being moved. And, uh, but what is happening, of course, the most important thing that's happening is that, as Pastor Henry's blog says today, I will draw all men to myself if I am lifted up. He didn't say, I maybe I will. He said, I will. I will draw all. And all doesn't just mean all humanity. But it means all created reality will be drawn to him. And in one sense, it already has. We've been dealing with the idea of what is faith. The first part, faith as perception, as a means of perception. The second part, Jesus Christ and our participation with him, participation with Jesus Christ's own faithfulness. This is the apex of the message. And the third part Jesus Christ himself, faith is Jesus Christ himself and the death that he executed in perfect faithful obedience to God the Father. Our justification is rooted in his obedience, his faithful obedience, which culminated in, climaxed in his faithful death for our sins. Now Paul inherited a Christian traditional gospel. Of course, he spent a fortnight with Peter, that's the British way of saying two weeks. Two weeks are around fifteen days with Peter, and Paul inherited a Christian traditional gospel. And he never departed from that, although his his gospel dealt with stunning implications of the traditional gospel. It involves the announcement that Christ died for our sins was buried, and arose from the dead on the third day. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, and he said, it's what we have received. The tradition, paradidomi, handed over, paralambano, received. Tradition, handed over, tradition, received. Each of these three aspects of one event, the Christ event, happened according to the prophetic writings, according to the scriptures. They're rooted in the scriptures. Isaiah 53 is usually put forth, as we've seen, as a primary evidence of this, the death of Messiah and his burial and with the rich man and his his resurrection and even his ascension on high. Paul's gospel, however, that gospel that he calls my gospel in Romans 2.16 and again in Romans 16.25 and 26, though never deviating from the indispensable facts of the gospel that he outlines in 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4, his gospel brings out previously unimagined implications of those essential features. None of the staggering implications of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection stray ever. They never stray or go away from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified, First Corinthians two two. This is a phrase, incidentally, that encompasses Christ's death and his resurrection. Jesus Christ and this one as crucified, literally in First Corinthians two two, means that the crucified Christ is the resurrected Christ, and the resurrected Christ is the Christ who was crucified. The crucified is a proper title for Jesus because his crucifixion itself is a theophany, the appearance of God, the visible manifestation of God who is love is Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is no greater manifestation or theophany or appearance of God than that. And that will be made evident to all in his Coming, his parousia. The appearance and public manifestation of God as love. Unconditional, unrestricted love, bringing uncontingent grace by which we are saved. The perfect tense of the word starao, which is what it means to be crucified, starao, the perfect tense of starao not only conveys completed action but perpetually ongoing results in the present. Jesus Christ is not only to be seen and perceived as risen and alive, but as one who was dead and who is now living. Revelation 118 as one. Now let's call it the one, the one whose death was of the most shameful and horrific kind called the death of the cross but whose death was also the culmination of an act of obedience to God's saving will for God is not willing that any should perish on the negative and God is willing that all be saved on the positive first Timothy 2 3 and 4 in connection with 2nd Peter 3 8 and 9 the idea here is that the participle, which has great meaning here, the participle form of the word crucify, starao, the participle has a remarkable versatility to it. It functions as a noun, as an adjective, and as a verb. Crucified, then, is as much of an identifier of Jesus as Christ. It's a, it is as proper to say Jesus crucified as it is to say, Jesus Christ. That is his title. Crucified, then, is as much of an identifier of Jesus as Christ is. God's Messiah is a crucified Messiah whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection, though not mentioned in the term Christ crucified, is presumed, it's presupposed, and of course it is... The reality of our time right now this is significant in fact in John's gospel where we began here way back in 2010 John's gospel because for example God is said to have sent his eternal begotten his eternally begotten son into the world The word starao means passive. It's a passive voice. He received the action of being crucified, but he did so willingly. God's Messiah is a crucified Messiah whom God raised from the dead and elevated on high. And so he did this, that the world may be saved through him. John's gospel, in fact, the first theme that I dealt with, really in total in our moving into this building, is that God is said to have sent His eternally begotten Son into the world so that through him the world would be saved. John 3:16 to 17. In fact, this has occurred. Through his crucifixion and death, followed by his burial, his resurrection on the third day, and his elevation to the right side of the enthroned God. Hebrews 1 3b is straightforward. This is all introduction. Hebrews 1 3b. After having accomplished purification of sins, that's all sins. Of all volitional creatures of all time. That's what that means. Having accomplished purification of sins, that is, of the whole world, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High. And the Hebrew has Hagdullah Bam Romim, which is the Majesty on High, the way of speaking of Yahweh, God Himself, the Father. The eternal Logos then, as John teaches, himself God, became flesh. He was sent, and by this he received the action of God his Father. Sent. He received the action. Doesn't mean that he did not participate in it willingly. He was willingly sent. He willingly came. Not only did the Father give him and hand him over to death on the cross, but the Son loved us and gave himself Himself for us. They were one in that act. So that he received this action does not mean that Jesus didn't willingly comply with God's action. Quite the contrary. His entire living and livingness was in obedient compliance with the Father's will. From my mother's womb, he said, I was cast upon you, O God. Psalm 22 again his entire living and livingness I did not come to do my own will but that of my father and we know that the father's will very happily is saving will his saving will happily for us the father's will was and is and always will be salvific We are saved by a commitment made to God, not ours, but his. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. The commitment is Jesus Christ. The faith, then, is Jesus Christ, as we'll see. God is willing that all human beings be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, which is the reality that is Jesus. Where Jesus is reality and this will be the apex and climax of my teaching that will come to in January This is God's promeity promeity is the final doctrine that we'll be dealing with in Romans promeity means God is for us God for us God for us so, that who can be against us, and the answer is no one. God's promeity, meaning that God is none other than God for us. Promeity means that God and God for us is one person. You can never separate or segregate God from God for us. I am that I am. I will be all that you need me to be Yahweh. And Jesus Christ is the manifest member of the Trinity and to see him is to see the father is to see the father's saving will he is god for us in the flesh that's christmas first john 5 again this is all introduction an important introduction first john 5:20 and we know that the son of god has come and has given us understanding faith as perception so that we may know the true one We are in the true one, capital O-N-E. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The last verse in 1 John is this. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This last verse in 1 John may seem artificially added and I always used to wonder, why did you throw that in? As if it's almost like a, an addendum or an appendix, an unneeded organ. But it's not. The elder John is simply showing that any God, small g, that people choose to worship who is not God for us is an idol. When we guard ourselves or keep ourselves away from idols, we are distancing ourselves from any God, whose so-called justice involves the unending torture of human beings. Let me say that again. When we guard ourselves from idols or keep ourselves away from idols, one of the things we're doing is distancing ourselves from any so-called God whose so-called justice involves the unending torture of human beings, rebellious ones. For those, for example, who spend their lives in rebellion against him. In contrast to this, Jesus Christ is the true God. And he is the life. He is the life of the coming age. And he manifested his love in his crucifixion. He is our life, says Colossians 3, 4. Now that we've been made alive... Together with him, having also been crucified together with him, we are justified. All of humankind will be made alive in Christ. That isn't according to the traditional gospel. The traditional gospel said Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead. But Paul's, the implication of that is brought out by Paul. That implication is... That all died in Adam, but all will be made alive in Christ. The church doesn't understand yet, generally speaking, the implications of the gospel. The implication, if Christ died, and he did, Christ died for our sins, basic fact of the gospel. But for Paul, that meant if one died, then all died. And henceforth, the love of Christ controls me. There are millions of Christians who know the traditional gospel, but the love of Christ doesn't control them. And it can't until we recognize that one died for all, therefore all died. And when all died, all were justified. And when Christ raised, all were raised. The accomplished act of God for salvation. Jesus Christ is our life and we've been made alive with him while we were dead in trespasses and sins all of humankind will be made alive in Christ you only have to take 1 Corinthians 15:3 and 4 and jump over to 15:22 and see just one of the astonishing implications of the gospel Paul's gospel Christians have the gospel across this world today we have the gospel the traditional gospel But do we and have we yet laid hold of the unimaginable implications of it? That's what the church seems to be resistant against. I know I was. God is able to convince. And he convinced me. That's why I think that the nutcracker is very Christmassy. Because I'm the nut and he's the one that cracked me. So... See, we can bring it all into Christmas if we really try hard. But right now, right now, you who are seated here or you who are listening to this message on a Tuesday in your den or your parlor, love that word, in your car on a Friday or in the bath on a Saturday night which is when you take your bath. You've already been made alive together with Christ by the action of God, the Holy spirit thought I'd let you know that you've been saved by grace on the basis of the faithful death of Jesus crucified. Faithful death is kind of a strange word. It needs to be unfurled like a flag, a banner. This is God's gift to you. Just as faith to perceive this reality the reality that is Jesus and to participate in his fidelity, his life, his livingness is also a gift. So we're justified on the basis of Messiah's fidelity in which we participate by God's grace. Our justification, which is that, Catchword in Romans and Galatians is our participation in Christ's death because no one living can be justified in God's sight. So all died when Christ died. We were crucified with Christ. The faithfulness of Christ then is our gift from God. This is God's gift to you. Just as faith to perceive this reality and to participate in Christ's Messiah's, the Messiah's fidelity, is a gift. Our justification, then, again, is our participation with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection life. The faithfulness of Christ is also our faithfulness. His death, our death, his life, our life. And when we experience his coming, we will be like him because Colossians 3, 4 says, and when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. He is our life. This appearing with Christ in glory isn't what is known as the rapture by which a few million or billion people are caught away from this world. That's not going to happen. This is speaking of the glorification of the entire universe in the parousia, the coming of Christ, the universal cosmos-wide appearance of Jesus crucified, and that's a glorification in which we are all caught up, harpazo, caught up, swept up into bodily resurrection as the whole universe is transfigured and transformed in his appearance, rooted in the cross. The whole of creation and all of humanity in all of its times, eras, and epochs will be savingly and gloriously summed up in Jesus. This is the implication of Christ dying for our sins, being buried, and on the third day being raised from the dead. We have the facts of the gospel. Let's understand the unimaginable implications. That's Paul's gospel. So his faithful death executed in the obedience of one Jesus Christ to the father's saving will was a justifying death, a death by which all that is wrong or ever was wrong or ever will be wrong will be righted. It is through Jesus Christ and him crucified that the world is, in fact, and in reality, saved. Now, the upshot of all this for our present mini-series called What is Faith? is that in many crucial passages in Paul, faith is Christ himself. Another word for Christ himself. That is, Jesus as a person and Jesus as an event. In First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 123 for example Paul and his associates preach Christ crucified I'm an associate with Paul in this I preach Christ crucified so do all of us But in Galatians 123 Paul preaches the faith he said that he once Sought to destroy they the churches only heard that I preached the faith that I once tried to destroy in first corinthians one twenty three we preach a crucified Christ, we preach Christ and him crucified in galatians one twenty three I preach the faith that I once attempted to destroy. We can put faith over in 1 Corinthians 123 and Christ over in Galatians 123. I preach faith that I once tried to destroy. I preach the Christ that I once tried to destroy that I once persecuted. Paul preaches Christ crucified. Paul preaches the faith. The faith in this case, then, that Paul preaches is Christ crucified. The death of Christ for sins is traditionally passed on to all Christians, including Paul. It's Christ's faithful death, which means a death to which he's willingly submitted in order to annihilate sin. Death for sins, plural, means that when he annihilated or put away sin, singular, he annihilated or put away or obliterated into nothingness all of our collusions with sin, our willful collusions with sin, our sins by omission or sins by commission, as people like to say it in tradition. It's a death that he willingly submitted to in order to annihilate sin, capital S-I-N, which is a cosmic adverse power, according to Paul's homardiology. And thereby he vaporized all sins committed in collusion with sin. All sins, small S-I-N-S, committed in collusion with or in cooperation with sin. Faith then is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is where I want to take you to where X marks the spot. Galatians 3.23 to 25. This is not introduction. This is second gear. Galatians 3.25, X marks the spot. And by X, I don't mean X. I mean key, the Greek capital letter key. Looks like this small case. Christos begins with... That's why some people say Xmas. It's okay to say Xmas if you mean the key, speaking of Christ. But Christos, X marks the spot. It looks like an English X, but it's the Greek letter key, which is essentially a C. So we have C-H-R-I-S-T-S, R-I-S-T-O-S. The X marks the spot. Now, there is in the structure of writing, and this takes either some ingenious turns by the, the writer or the Holy Spirit does it himself, there's a thing called kiasmos. That's spelled wrong. chiasmas And that means there's a structure in which there is, say, this is mentioned in a passage, then this is mentioned in a passage, then something else is mentioned in a passage, and then this is mentioned in a passage, and then this is mentioned in a passage, and, a passage, and, a passage, and you have... X marks the spot. Well, X marks the spot, or key marks the spot of my writing today in my, that I have before me that you'll have in print. And here it is. In Galatians 3.23 to 25, these three verses together, Paul writes this, and this is our first foray into Galatians. Now, before this faith came, what does it say? This faith came. We, that's all the human race, as we'll see, We're confined under the law. We were confined under the law because, as we've seen, and we saw this Wednesday night, in Galatians 3.22, God, the Scripture, that's the Scripture in its totality, has imprisoned everything under sin. There, Paul concludes that not only were all human beings placed under sin, but so was the law itself. The law, the Elohim, the gods (small G) that God judged in Psalm eighty-two six had something to do with the law that was mediated by Moses, that had to be dealt with in Christ's death. But that's coming up in Galatians. That's some. That is some heavy stuff. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned. Until the aforementioned faith was apocalyptically revealed. There we have our famous Romans word, apocalypto. So before this faith came, we were confined, imprisoned under the law until the aforementioned faith was apocalyptically revealed. Now we already have Paul speaking in his autobiography of christ being apocalyptically revealed in him we'll be coming to that also in galatians this is kind of an intro to galatians verse 24 then says the law then was our custodian and that is not a pleasant person who takes us to school that's a punitive prison guard until christ so notice that the law was our custodian, our prison guard, because we were imprisoned under the law until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. That's ek pistios, which is a key term in Romans, ek pistios, on the basis of faithfulness literally, on the basis of or out from or on the basis of faithfulness. So let's read it again, 323, beginning at the beginning of 323. Now, before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the faith was apocalyptically revealed. The law then was our custodian until Christ, until Christ, so that we would be justified By faith, Jesus Christ's faithfulness, or we're going to see Christ's faithful death. But verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Now, we can literally interchange faith and Christ here, and I mean literally. Literally interchange faith and Christ In this passage faith equals Christ Christ equals faith in this passage let's read it again here without commentary 323 to 25 now before this faith came we were confined under the law imprisoned until the aforementioned faith was apocalyptically revealed the law then was our custodian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Now, we have in this passage a chiasmos. Paul, I think deliberately, but maybe even if not deliberately, the Holy Spirit deliberately created here a chiasmos, a form of a structure of writing. So we have faith in this passage before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the aforementioned faith. We have faith again. And then it says, until the aforementioned faith was apocalyptically revealed, 24, the law then was our custodian until Christ came so that we could be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a custodian. So we have faith, faith, Christ, faith, faith. X marks the spot, Christ. We're justified by Christ. And that means that faith here actually equals Christ's faithful death. When Christ came, faith came. Not the faith that Abraham had was just a rough analogy to this faith. The faithfulness of God in Christ came justifying the whole of humanity. And so the chiasmas in the original text please note it let's do the reverse i'm going to do this i'm going to take every place where faith is mentioned and put Christ instead in this chiasmas in galatians 3:23 to 25 everywhere where faith is mentioned i'm going to put Christ Everywhere where Christ is mentioned, I'm going to put faith. Let's see how it works. Now, before Christ came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the aforementioned Christ was apocalyptically revealed, apocalypto. The law then was our custodian until faith so that we could be justified by Christ but now that Christ has come Merry Christmas we are no longer under a custodian so now we have if we make faith in Christ equivalent and interchangeable we have Christ Christ faith Christ 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 The whole point that Paul is making... You know what? One thing that drives me crazy about Paul, he isn't systematic. He doesn't come out and say doctrinally what our doctrines say. But he makes very clear that our justification, our being set right with God, was Jesus Christ in his death. In Galatians 2.21, he said, I don't frustrate the grace of God because if justification comes by works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. He doesn't match up our believing with our works. He matches up works with Christ's saving death. Either way you cut this, this chiasmos, which can also be a cruciform kind of structure, has Christ four times here with faith in the middle or four times faith with Christ in the middle. We are saved, justified by the faithful death of christ the crucified christ so the chiasmus in the original text is faith faith christ faith faith but the chiasmus in the modified text in which we put faith for christ it still works in fact it brilliantly works christ christ faith christ christ therefore what does galatians have to do with romans galatians was written before romans which shows that Paul already fought this battle and stood strong. And there will be a time when you may have to stand strong at a critical moment in life. If Paul hadn't stood strong against those who came from James and the apparent pillars of the church in Jerusalem and had bowed, if he had bowed to the pressure of the false brethren who only saw Christ's death as a kind of auxiliary to the works of the law, If Paul hadn't stood and made Christ be everything instead of marginalized over here like religion does. Then we wouldn't have the truth of the gospel with us today. He said, I didn't give them room, not even for an hour, which means not even at all. So that the truth of the gospel might remain for you today. So. Please note this it's a beautiful thing to look at in the Greek text before this faith came before this Christ came we were confined under the law before the aforementioned faith was apocalyptically how do you apocalyptically reveal faith unless it's personified in a person Jesus Christ. So what does this do when Galatians, where Paul already fought this war, he comes to Rome, he writes to Rome having already won this war, and he takes on an opponent there, a very powerful teacher. And this may have its roots in the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community of the Dead Sea area, the Dead Sea Desert, where they had a featured character in all their writings called the Teacher, capital T, of Righteousness. And they had idealized this teacher of righteousness and Paul took on this whole justification by the works of the law and in doing so took on the whole justification by our act of human believing and made it justification by the faithful execution of God's will by Jesus Christ, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Don't we realize that the obedience of Christ and his commitment to the Father is the saving grace of all? Think of it. If you don't commit your life to Jesus, you're going to hell. Now, I'm not, I, I, I don't, I'm not maligning people who say that because they have the traditional gospel. They haven't seen the implications. For 40 years, I have done nothing but preach this Christ who died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. But at the close of those 40 years, toward the close, the last seven of those 40 years, I began to see the implications of that gospel, which is what Paul called my gospel. He had to go to Jerusalem. He didn't have to. He went by a revelation To meet with the pillars there the the dignitaries who at that time were James the Lord's brother Peter whom he respected above all and spent two weeks with James he nodded at in a hall and John not John the beloved disciple but John the brother of James of Zebedee and so they were, Paul wasn't mocking him at all, and, and I thought he was, but he, he wasn't being ironic. He was saying the dignitaries, these men who deserve dignity because they had a relationship with Christ before his crucifixion and death and resurrection. They had a pre-Easter relationship with Jesus Christ. My relationship with Jesus Christ began post-Easter, he said. Once I knew Christ only after the flesh, but now I know him that way no more. There's implications about this, he says. And the implication goes as far as 1 Corinthians 15, 28. There'll be a time when God will be all and in all. That's an implication. Why? Well, I don't want to ask why because I don't know why. But the traditional gospel right now being held by multiple millions maybe even billions of Christians it's time for us to see the implications of that or the church is just going to die on the vine and have no effect to the next generation no effect on it at all now what does this do where Paul fought the war in Galatians and we're going to get into the heat of that battle maybe Paul then writes to Romans, and Romans 5.1 is really the critical place where he says, now let's enjoy the peace that God wrought through the blood of Christ's cross and drop your biases, your resonement, your prejudices in Rome and everywhere else. Look at Romans 5.1 in this light. Therefore being justified by faith. What does it mean after Paul fought that war? What does it mean justified by faith? Can we say there, like we said here, being justified by Christ, being justified by Christ's faithful death? Can we say it? I think we can because if we get to Romans 5, 9, your eyes can wander down there if you want. Justified by his blood, which is a metonymy for his death. Being justified by his death, justified so does justified by faith in romans five one contradict justified by his blood in five nine or if we go all the way down to five eighteen and nineteen by one act of obedience, which is faithfulness of Jesus Christ, one act of obedience The many or the all, and Paul really makes it very explicit, if you haven't noticed. 5.18 and 19, he makes many equal all. Many equals all. They are also used interchangeably. By the act of the disobedience of the one man, Adam, protos, Adam, all were condemned. By the act of obedience of the eschatos, Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven, All, the many equals all, were given justifying life. Can we say and have it be legit? Is it too legit to quit? That in Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, ek pistios, which goes back to Romans 1, 17, on the basis of Christ's faithfulness or Christ's faithful death, or can we even say being justified by Jesus Christ? Let us enjoy peace together. We have it. That's a given. We have this peace. Let's go enjoy it, peace together, harmony together. Instead of fighting, well, we're Jews and we're circumcised and you Gentiles have to be circumcised and follow the law, even though Jesus Christ died for your past sins, even though Christ came, it was just as an additional figure to fulfilling the works of the law. And on the other hand, the Gentiles are saying, yeah, but you Jews, you were rejected and forsaken by God. And so you're identified with the forsaken people. Paul blows that out of the water and curbs that enthusiasm in Romans 11. Let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to have a measuring contest for who's got the biggest faith. We were justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is for all. That's the standard. That's the cross. Faith is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself is the only reality that counts. And the only family that matters isn't your little nuclear family, but the family of God, which is the triune God united with all humanity in Jesus Christ through redemption. Therefore, being justified by faith on the basis of Christ's faithful death, let us enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified by Jesus Christ, let's enjoy this peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. The peace that we enjoy is the peace that was made by the blood of the cross of Jesus the son of god's love colossians 1:20 it's the reconciliation of the world to himself that god did in christ god did it in christ so it is this reconciliation that we have received jump down to 5:11 of romans we have received this reconciliation the reconciliation that God did in Christ we've received we have perceived it by faith now we participate in it by participating in Messiah's fidelity our faith isn't even really meaningful until it's faith in the fact that we are justified by his faith his faithfulness he who is Faithfulness. The faithfulness of God saved us. The faithfulness of God is personified in Jesus Christ. We're saved by a commitment to God. Jesus' commitment to God for us. And so when the Son will have ruled until all his enemies are under his feet, then he will submit or commit again himself to God. But this time he commits himself to God with all of the created reality that he redeemed. So that God will be all in all what's left out of what Let me ask you this what is left out of all in all well there's a certain time period that's left out what time period was that well there's a certain there's certain egregious criminal evil people that are left out when where does it say that question as I said Wednesday night that I was asked why didn't Jesus say to the other thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise? My answer is why did he have to? He was talking to one guy. One guy said remember me Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said that's easy. You'll be there this afternoon. Later this evening. Before the sun goes down. Because they're going to come. I'll be dead already and in paradise you'll have your legs broken and the splinters will travel to your heart and cause your death before the sun shines. So you'll be with me in paradise. Not someday, but today. But who knows who he was looking at when he said that. I think he was looking over at the other guy that keeps, still kept saying, hey, get us out of here. Get us out of this mess. I think he probably looked over at him too and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why not? If we're saved by his faithful death, and not by us asking Jesus to remember us. If I'm saved by asking Jesus to remember me when I come into the... I don't ever remember really praying that prayer. I'm damned. I'm done. But I, they were both saved. And that's why Christ was crucified between a repentant and an unrepentant thief. To show that his faithfulness would set right both of them and all humanity. So what's left out of all in all? Jesus Christ is our peace. He made all tribes and families and groups, once divided by cultures, ideologies, etc., into one new humanity. You can call it this if you want one new family. Family is everything you heard that lately I've heard it so much I almost upchucked. family is everything I'll tell you what family is everything if by that you mean the family of the triune God into whom all of humanity is subsumed in Jesus Christ if you want to, if that's what you mean then family is everything if that's not what you mean then you've got an idol called family And perhaps even a familial spirit. See, in the course of our action here, I happen to be a iconoclast. I'm exposing hidden idols. Like when people worship the Bible as an idol. Bibliolatry. Or when people worship family as an idol. Or when people worship ego. I never say to God, Lego, my ego, because he's got my ego, my ego. He he got me. He apprehended me. My whole life, then, is to apprehend the one who laid hold of me. So I'm never going to ask God, Lego, my ego. My ego was crucified with Christ. Ego. That's how you pronounce ego in the Greek. Anyways, we (laughs) enjoy this peace, this messianic livingness, when we perceive by faith, we enjoy this peace when we perceive by faith that we are justified by Messiah's faithfulness. When we, Galatians 5.5, 5, we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of the rectification of the whole universe by faith remember that the saying of bloody bill when he comes up upon josie wales his wife was raped his children were murdered his house was burned down he quotes job in the where god gives and he takes away and then bloody bill rides up and he says to josie wales them red legs did that didn't they?" And he said yeah and he says well, we're going up to Kansas and set things right. Josie said, I'll be coming with you. That's exactly what God bloody, the bloody Christ has said. We're going to go down there and set things right. Everything will be set right so that when all is said and done, everything will be all right. So, in closing... We, through the Spirit, Paul said, wait for the hope of the rectification of the universe by faith. While we wait, we walk in a newness of life, in a new rule, by a new rule. A newness of life joined to the crucified one as those who are crucified with him and raised with him. The marks on us are not made by ritual circumcision. We bear, as it were, the marks of the crucified, by whose blood we were justified, and in whose life we are being saved from the evil age, from sin's dominion, and from the fear of death after all why fear death if we died and our lives are hid with Christ in God the implications of paul's gospel then are properly summed up at the heart of the center of romans namely romans 8:31 let's look there as we close while you're turning, as I said Wednesday, I have I thought I had seven verses left to translate in Romans. I only have I have actually seventeen verses. When I finish translating all of Romans, which I have, I'm going to do a greatly expanded paraphrase of Romans and then read it here in our means we're going to go from Romans one one to sixteen twenty seven. In a series of readings so we've been from the right to the center from the left to the center and we're messing up we're dealing with the whole center in kind of a jumbled seemingly a seemingly jumbled warfare mess but at the end I'm going to go all the way from Romans 1 1 through 16 in an expanded translation in that translation I will put down in brackets who's doing the talking when the teacher intercedes and intervenes when Paul responds to the objection of the teacher When Paul gives us a speech in character, like Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, it's all going to be notated so that you'll get the point and the objections and the fielding of the objections by Paul. We'll have a greatly expanded paraphrase translation so that you'll get the whole gist of Romans. And what will happen, I guarantee this will happen. When they expounded the scriptures and gave the sense, the people went out rejoicing the joy of the lord was their strength the kingdom of god is righteousness being set right by christ's faithful death peace the resultant livingness after that and joy in the holy spirit what can we say against these things then paul says he finally gets to the point where what objection have you got now and then the answer is nothing nothing that's the point of what he's talking about here in Romans eight thirty one. What can we say against these things? Nothing. If God is for us, and the way he put this is not an if at all, it means he most emphatically is for us because of the syntactical arrangement here. He says, if God is for us and he most emphatically is, who can be against us? That's like saying, what's outside of God all in all? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Since indeed God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all, how will he not with him freely grant us all things? And that means the universe as our inheritance, among other things. That's an implication of the traditional gospel. Now, what do you want to do? sit in a traditional setting and hear the facts of the gospel repeated and reiterated without their implications, which makes it kind of ultimately nauseatingly repetitive and traditional, or do you want to really go for the implications of it that are unimaginable, stunning, staggering, life transforming, universe transfiguring? I'll go with the implications of the facts while never straying from facts. Thank you father for this opportunity. I am grateful father when I see these things I'm grateful that you've allowed us as a tiny flock a little flock, a small congregation of your universal redeemed creation that you've allowed us even now in the midst of an evil age and in the midst of perilous times to see the implications of the death the burial the resurrection of your son to see Jesus and to see him as the only lasting reality to see Jesus as the reconciliation of God and humankind and to see Jesus as reality